Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yuel Inbar. With me here is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, how's it going over there? Pretty good, Yuel. How are you? I am in quarantine. I am in day four of my mandatory 14-day quarantine. You are probably out partying every night now that you've gotten your shots, right? Totally. I just like went to a wedding. I'm about to want to go to a concert. <laughs> Shit, man. Yeah, so Canada... Canada is a little behind. Um, Canada uh, still makes you quarantine when you come in from out of the country, even if you are fully vaccinated, which I am. Um, so uh, they did let me back in, which is great. But you have to do a COVID test uh, before you come in. So you have to show them that. And then they give you another COVID test on the spot. And then they give you another COVID test to take home with you. And you still have to quarantine for 14 days. So that's my life right now. Wow, that's very intense. This is very relevant to me because I'm really trying to, I'm trying to come home and see my parents at some point. Um, but talking to my parents is giving me increasing amounts of guilt because every time I talk to them, the discrepancy between our quality of life just keeps like increasing, increasing. So like, yeah, I'll be tell I told them that I like went to a wedding and they're like, yeah, we haven't seen our friends in a year and a half. Um, and they're like all in lockdown and stuff like that. So I'm feeling, feeling pretty guilty actually. Yeah, yeah, as you as you should. That, yeah. that feeling is appropriate. Yeah. yeah. Well, for the time being, they're still doing when you arrive by air, you have to spend three nights in this government hotel thing. And that's like, uh, apparently, extremely expensive and also may expose you to COVID. So not recommended. Okay, yeah, good to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We actually, I, I did this thing, which is like this ridiculously convoluted plan in order to dodge that. So like that only applies if you're coming back by air. So I actually drove my car over the border and left it there and flew from the US side so that I didn't also have to do the hotel and on top of the other quarantine stuff that you have to do regardless of how you arrive. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, here's the thing. Like, I wonder if you run into this like i feel like americans like particularly like the sort of americans we would know are like canada's amazing they do everything better the u.s sucks it's like fuck man i've been waiting three months to see an allergist and after quarantine for two weeks even though i'm completely vaccinated i'm kind of like fuck this shit <laughs> like, <laughs> this is bullshit I, I mean i grew up in canada and uh i am canadian so i'm still programmed to think that so i'm just like there's something there's some reason why the U.S. is more fucked up. Like, we're, like, hoarding vaccines. And, like, if we were, like, a nice country, we would just give vaccines to Canada. And Canada's probably, like, you know, has fewer vaccinated people because they're probably giving their vaccines away. Like, there must be some explanation that is that Canada is better than the U.S. Right, right. I mean, the U.S. did give away the AstraZeneca that they did not want in Canada. So that, <laughs> yeah, right. that is very generous. <laughs> anyway, um, shall we talk about what we're drinking today? Uh, yeah, let's talk about what we're drinking. Um, you want to go first, you all? I would like to go first because my beer today is badass. So this is a Unibrew uh, Saison. Uh, it says Saison 13 and then it has the little Megadeth dude. I don't know if you're a Megadeth fan ever. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, well-known metal band um, that I was a fan of when I was like 14. And it's got the dude from the Megadeth album. And uh, yeah, it's a Saison uh, 6%. I, we'll see if I drink another beer after this because it's kind of a tall can and it's like a little bit of a, you know, 
slightly stronger beer. So we'll see how this goes. I was just about to say, like, I feel like Mickey is going to be so sad that he's missing this. You're drinking beer. Uh, you're drinking a beer from a French brewery. So you're probably pronouncing it wrong. Like he's like going to have so much FOMO. But you did just admit that you might only drink one. So maybe he will feel like his decision to leave you is justified. Yeah, I am drinking beer now all the time just to spite him. But yeah, (laughs) we'll see if I get to the second one. Uh, What have you got to drink today? Um, I have a beer called Just the Juice. Um, It's got a football player on it. um, And the football player is holding a bunch of oranges. Um, And this is from uh, Prairie Artisan Ales, which is in Oklahoma. Wow, nice. That looks very tasty. All right, shall we crack them? Let's do it. Yum. Oh, this is good. This tastes like a creamsicle. Ooh, that sounds very summery. <laughs> this is like, I mean, these Unibrew beers are always like, they, they kind of like all taste similar to me and they're they're kind of intense. So is this is also kind of intense. It's not exactly summery, but you know, uh, it's got the metal dude. So I feel like that's still a win. I still think you made the right choice. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Alexa. Thank you. Um, so uh, what are we talking about today, Alexa? Well, Yoel, I'm glad you asked. Um, so I was thinking that it would be fun for us to go back to uh, some of the papers that were written in like 2011, 2012, around the time um, that the replication crisis sort of like started or became a thing. Um, and actually, like this didn't occur to me when we initially started talking about this as a topic, um, but I guess we're kind of at like 10, 10 year anniversary mark at this point. Um, so it could be kind of cool to like look back and reflect on what has changed since people were like, oh, this field needs to totally do an overhaul. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Like I hadn't thought about that either. And then I was, um, I noticed it today, actually, that these papers are just about 10 years old now. Um, so yeah, I guess the context that this came from is like, you know, some of us have been talking about like, how's open science doing, right? And if you're like, oh, the pessimist case might be, we had these very reform-minded editors at two major journals who are now gone and replaced by less reform-minded people. You have examples of people leaving the field who are like really... Um, you know, like instrumental or well-known folks in kind of like science reform. So I'm thinking of like Tall. Ugh, Tall's got a fucking impossible to say name. <laughs> Tall Yarconi, uh, Joe Hilgard, right. James Heather's before that. Other folks who are like opting out and deciding to go to industry in various ways. Um, you have uh, Samin running for SPSP president, um, Samin Vizier running for SPSP president and losing to uh, a lady that I don't know a lot about, but who's not like really well known as a reformer, right? So you might say, what a bummer, and we're losing ground. And I guess in that context, it's like, interesting to look back and, and see like, well, you know, how are we doing compared to 10 years ago? And like, how accurate is that oppression? So, I mean, I guess before we start with, like, the papers, like, do you have this general feeling? Like, I, we were talking about this with Mickey as well, and he's very, like, doom and gloom about it, I feel. Like, do you have this feeling of, like, oh, things are getting worse or we're sort of, like, stalled out? Yeah, I mean, I think it really matters what um, what sort of time scale you look at. So, yeah, I mean, I feel the same sort of, like, sense of maybe disappointment or, like, a loss of momentum, I guess, within the past, like, past year or so or a couple of years 
um, which maybe is like a sort of a sort of natural um, fluctuation for this kind of like change within a field. Um, yeah, I don't know. It seems like there are some ways in which, um, yeah, people have sort of like opted for the like less reform option in a few different domains. Um, but uh, I don't know if you, I think that if you consider it over the span of 10 years. Um, this is something that I talk about like relatively frequently in, in classes with undergrads. Um, and so sometimes I will sort of like go over the, the list of like things that's, that have changed. And maybe I also go over it with a goal of like being a little bit optimistic because I'm like slightly concerned about being a professor who's like, here's why everything sucks in the field that you're interested in. Like, <laughs> be warned. Here's why you should quit and do something else. <laughs> here's why you're wasting your time. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'm like sort of looking for the the sort of like positive, uh, constructive examples or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't feel as as pessimistic, I guess, as like the way that you described Mickey feeling. Um, I think that, I think that the way that the field changes really exceeded my initial or has changed really exceeded my initial expectations. Um, and then like maybe you get your hopes up and you think that like the change is going to accelerate or it's going to keep going, but I don't know this, this could be like an aspect of my personality where I generally have sort of low expectations and I'm easily impressed. Uh, so this might be an example of a case where I feel satisfied when I should be disappointed. I don't know. Uh, that's funny. I mean, it's, that certainly seems like a personality characteristic that would be like good for your mental health overall. Yeah. Uh, this is the advice that one of my grad students gives her, um, her undergrad students. So she teaches one class on love and her main advice about love is to have low expectations. Um, <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> Right. They could like never disappoint you if your expectations are low enough. <laughs> Which I wouldn't necessarily apply to my own love life, but uh, I would say that in general, this characterizes me as a person. Right. Right. I mean, so it's possible that, you know, we we did the easy stuff first. And so change was very quick there. And, and now the uh, remaining problems are, are harder. Um, I guess it is also possible that there's sort of a, conservative, you know, small C conservative pushback where those folks who like really don't like change at all have now like reconsolidated their, um, their position and are, are, are going to undo some of this stuff. I mean, I suppose that's a, that's a thing to keep an eye on, right? Like, is it that we're still making progress, but less slowly, or is it that some of these changes that we see as positive are actually being rolled back? Like I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of rolling back. Have you? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that there probably is some sort of like reaction where there has been a lot of change happening over the last 10 years. And I don't know. I mean, this is like, this is speculating quite a bit. I don't know what people's rationales are for like their editor choices or the SPSP president choices or whatnot. But um, yeah, I don't know. I wonder if like there's so... Um, so yeah, this paper by, uh, Leslie John talking about the sort of like joy of doing research. I wonder if, if people, uh, are looking for, for somebody who's like, uh, 
just like a fan of psychology and somebody who's like not really not so much a critic. Um, yeah, I don't know. I do feel like these kinds of um, these kinds of changes sometimes uh, elicit that kind of sort of like backlash or backswing. But um, like I said, I, I have no idea if that's where people are coming from. Say a little more about the Leslie John paper for those listeners who might not know this paper. Right. So uh, it, Leslie John recently published a paper um, where she examines um, researchers' interest in doing exploratory versus confirmatory research. And I guess her broad conclusion, I mean, not to get into too much detail, but her broad conclusion is that um, in some ways, I guess people find doing sort of pre-registered confirmatory research uh, less fun. Um, and perhaps there's some nostalgia for the old days when we're just sort of like, uh, I don't know, uh, p-hacking everything and like discovering. I, I mean, that's not what she would say, obviously, right? But but the the like sense of discovery and novelty and uh, r- rigor is a burden, I suppose. Right, Leslie John wants to bring back p-hacking, <laughs> and you, you heard it here first. <laughs> So, so yeah, we shouldn't get too into this paper um, because I, I haven't read it. Uh, we were both, I, I guess, panelists at a talk that she gave talking about this paper. And, and so I kind of know the outline of the main findings, but I don't know the, de- the details. But I mean, I guess setting those details aside, I do see the the appeal of somebody who's like the joy of exploration, all these fun ideas we have. Right. And and then it's like, well, getting things right is this very like kind of take your medicine stuff that is not that much fun. So if you're like, who are you going to vote for? The person who says you can have candy three meals a day or the person who says, you know, you have to eat your spinach. I mean, there's the spinach person is just kind of <laughs> at a disadvantage, right? Like right out of the gate. Mm hmm. Yeah. Although I like don't fully buy it. Like I do think that um, I guess there's like a transition period where uh, when the incentives are all in favor, like where the candy is all on the side of like the way that we used to do research. I do think that it's like a hard sell to ask people to um, to be eating the spinach. But but given that, I think the incentives have been changing quite a bit. Um, and it's like increasingly possible to, I guess, do the, like getting it right stuff and be rewarded. I'm not like, I don't always, at least from my own experience, I don't always feel like, um, like that is, you know, uh, like taking your lumps or something like that, or that, that it's like a slog always. And one like very specific example of that is. Um, that when I do, especially like registered reports are a good example of times when I'm like, this is a freaking blast. This is so much better than doing research when I was in grad school. And like, I felt like, you know, I could do everything right and get, uh, you know, a non-significant result and have completely wasted my time. So I, I don't buy that everything is like less pleasant now. Yeah, you know, that's a the registered report is a great example of how this can actually like make things more fun because you're not your publication hopes aren't hanging on finding the right thing, 
right? So you can get excited about the idea and the process and refining the methods. And then there's some excitement in seeing like, well, how does it turn out? It's a mystery. Like, I want to find that out, right? And and you get to enjoy all of that stuff without having it affected by the fact that positive results are more publishable than, than negative results. So yeah, I mean, I think that's totally true it, on the level of the individual researcher, for sure. When it comes to things like, you know, who should head this society, for example, like my feeling is, this is like super speculative, and I'm kind of just imagining like how this how this works or how people think about this. But for some folks who are like established in their careers, um, that they want somebody who's seen as like a cheerleader for the field, the person who's going to go out there and say, we're important, we do important work, we contribute in all these meaningful ways, give us money, pay attention to us. And they what they don't want is the Eeyore who's like, here's all the things we're screwing up, you know? And so, <laughs> so I mean, you know, Sabine's wonderful, but she that's that's what she brings to the table, right? And and uh I happen to like that. But I, I think for a lot of folks that's you know, they, they don't like it and and it runs counter to their kind of incentives of, you know, the the higher profile and better regarded social psychology is, the better they're doing. Yeah, right. And it's interesting, like your description of the cheerleader is like the first person who comes to mind when I picture that is actually Mickey who I do think is like fairly, you know, critical of the field at this point. And, um, but, you know, when, when I worked in his lab as a student, he just like was so excited all the time and so pumped. And so like, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like unfair to take this like past version of him and like reimagine him in this role or something like that. But, but it's easy for me to feel like I, I sort of like miss that in my life it's like you know Mickey coming up with like bananas ideas that we would like test and and you know that was like before we were aware of how serious like the problems with that approach were but that was really fun like I sometimes I miss it yeah no there is an excitement to that right to like throwing out all these wild ideas and like finding evidence for all of this crazy stuff and being like whoa can you believe this crazy thing that we're discovering about how humans work yeah, I know. I know. It's like, well, that that's the where they're like eating the candy is more fun, right? And like, mm-hmm. I think that like actually doing science well is a lot of it is really tedious. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And actually, I mean, I think that even doing science the way that like even adopting all of the reforms that um, have become like more and more commonplace, I feel like, yeah, now I'm like switching into ER mode, but like, I feel like they're really not enough. And like, actually we need to change things much more dramatically. And it's like very daunting. Like uh, when I imagine the sort of projects that I think are really worthwhile and people should be really investing in, they just sound like so intimidating. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'm up to the task always like. Yeah. I mean, there is a risk that our appeal as a field was really built on the stuff that's not replicable. And like, once we go to this stuff that is reliable, people are like, oh, that's actually pretty boring. and <laughs> We don't really care. It does feel a little bit like when I'm talking to undergrads and they have the like, actually there was this one specific conversation that I had with um, this friend of mine, Josh, who's a poet actually. Um, and he was always like really interested in social psychology and he would like, 
incorporated into his poems. Um, and it was like so beautiful and sweet. And then he like told me the effects that he was really into that he incorporated into his poems. And I was like, oh no, this is just like literally like a laundry list of all the stuff that doesn't replicate. And this is like the stuff that, you know, is like peaking the like, you know, interest and imagination of people who are not psychologists. So, but yeah, I don't know. Obviously, I think that there are um, like problems that social psychology theoretically could speak to that would be like extremely valuable for us to investigate. I think the process of doing that would not be fun, but would be very meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have the same experience of like having a, a friend who's not, you know, in psychology, but kind of interested in the field. And the stuff that she gets excited about is like invariably the stuff where I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's a reason that that stuff like, you know, gets out there into the public consciousness. It's just like more fun. And if you're not constrained by what's true, of course, you can make up more fun stuff. It's just an easier game That's that way. True. But I will say that I never found p-hacking as easy as people, people <laughs> yeah, make it seriously. Out. <laughs> I think we just sucked at it. We we're just kind of incompetent at it. Yeah, like I had crazy ideas in grad school and then I like tried to I tried to test them and then my uh, results didn't turn out the way I expected and then I tried to p-hack them and I still couldn't get it to work. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I mean, I guess it's a good thing the field moved on given that your skill set was not in p-hacking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So I guess we were going to um, talk about these two Brian Nosek papers from 2012. Um, so these are Scientific Utopia 1 and Scientific Utopia 2, right? So these are mm -hmm. two separate papers, both published in 2012. Scientific Utopia 1 is Nosek and Baranon, published in Psych Inquiry. Um, and then Scientific Utopia 2 is Nosek, Spies, and Modal, published in Perspectives on Psychological Science. Mm -hmm. I think I have that right. Um, so I guess our idea here broadly was to see, okay, well, these are supposed to be sort of like visionary papers, like how the field could change. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to see, well, has the field changed consistent with some of these visions or not? Uh, am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I was looking through them and the papers make like pretty pretty explicit recommendations. So the Scientific Utopia one focuses, I think, particularly on um, like open science. Um, so uh, open access and um, yeah, basically like transparency and making aspects of the publishing system more open. And then Scientific Utopia two, I would say focuses um, more on incentives more broadly incentives for encouraging like basically more robust research practices or 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 stronger research practices so um it's sort of interesting to like look through the list and you can really sort of see you know which of these recommendations or predictions came true it's also interesting to consider what's not on the list um so like changes that sort of like weren't anticipated i guess in 2012 um but there's definitely like a skew to to asking this question about like how how the field has lived up to these visions um, in this particular context, because these papers were written, I think, very much in line with the goals of the Center for Open Science um, as it was sort of like first materializing. Um, and so a lot of these goals are like 
these are things that we should be doing that actually we are doing right now. <laughs> um, so I think we see things come to fruition that were sort of like in the works at that, at that point. Um, but yeah, if you just sort of track what from those recommendations has, um, has sort of materialized in some capacity, it actually, you know, the, the field ends up looking like quite, quite good. And, and like a lot of these changes have sort of, uh, come come to pass and maybe exceeded initial expectations. So I don't know if you want to go into this, the, the level of like thinking about the specific recommendations and uh, and evaluating them. I think I think a lot of them actually are 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 worth considering at that level. But there are several. Yeah, I I think we ought to do that. Um, and I guess I I to me it makes sense to start with Utopia One, which it's it's funny to hear you point out. Weird that, choice. Uh, yeah, I know. Right? I realize this seems totally backwards, but let's start with the first one. Um, yeah, no, uh, obviously, Brian Nosek, the first author on both of these papers, is also uh, the founder of the Center for Open Science. And so it's kind of funny to read this with an eye to that. He's proposing that we do a bunch of things that COS actually ended up doing, which I guess makes sense. Um, so you can say, like, he obviously really believed this stuff because he got his organization to do a bunch of the things that he proposed. Um, so Utopia One, I feel like, is really about um, the current publication system. And it has a, a very like factual but funny description of how publication currently works, which I kind of want to like send to undergraduates to be like... You know, here's how this actually happens, because it seems so, like, just bizarre and arbitrary, you know, but but at the same time, totally true. So, like, you know, you get, uh, let's say, one to five reviewers, and those are based on, like, are they in the area? Does the editor know them personally? Uh, do they perhaps owe the editor a favor? And so on. Um, so, I, I mean, I think what that section is trying to point out is, like, yeah, this stuff is, like, historically evolved and doesn't maybe is not the like way that you would design this system if you were starting from first principles i think mm -hmm. is his argument right yeah 100 percent. and like so the first so this paper is set out in sort of stages so um there are six stages that are proposed for um i guess overhauling the publication system and making it more open um and also making it more efficient um but uh the first the first stage is um, the full embrace of digital communication. Uh, and it's pretty interesting to, to think about. So the recommendation here is like, okay, we don't need to think about uh, scientific papers as literally being printed on pages in journals. We no longer need to worry about the limitations of journal space. Um, so this should totally like transform the way that we think about uh, publishing. And that's a case where it feels really clear that the way that we we think about a scientific publication is so much dictated by the like the absence of the internet from the previous scientific publication system, right? So like yeah, we have these journals and they're printed on paper and you know, you can only have so many articles in a journal and things like that and that's just like, that doesn't characterize the world that we live in now at all. But we still have this basically the same system, just like made into an online format. Yeah, I mean, I think there, uh, I feel pretty comfortable saying we've checked that box. Yes, you know, journals still come out in issues. And yeah, maybe there's some sort of artificial constraints about 
the page limit that has to do with like, well, we do still print a paper copy of the journal. I'm honestly not quite as all in on make everything digital because I don't know, man, papers around paper stays around computers crash file formats change data is lost i just like having the physical thing i did not anticipate this argument i'm glad that we're gonna fight over <laughs> the, the argument that that journal should be on online versus on paper <laughs> we've gotten to point one here and it's already a fight no i mean i'm not saying just to be clear I think it's totally fine. And I mean, I obviously do this too, that like you don't go to the library anymore and get the paper copy, right? Like you uh, download it from the publisher's website and that's obviously how I do it. And it's much, much better. But I just don't want to throw out the paper journal entirely because um, I'm leery of technology and technology can can blow up and bite us and paper is well understood and we know it's not going anywhere. We'll still be here in 500 years. So I want the paper <laughs> copy, damn it. I, I want it as a backup, right? And it's nice that it's shipped to a bunch of different libraries. So if one library burns down, you still have the paper copy in other libraries. I think that's that the redundancy makes me happy. Uh, my understanding, so listen, I don't understand how the internet works, but my understanding is that there is also redundancy on the internet. Um, but are you telling me that like someone could like bomb some kind of like supercomputer in a desert somewhere and we could lose all of the scientific journals? Basically, the internet is a series of tubes. Okay, <laughs> that's the first thing that you have to understand. <laughs> I don't know, man. Computers crash. File formats go out of date. Bad shit happens. This is more like, you know, I'm thinking like post-apocalypse kind of kind of deal. Uh -huh. um, I, maybe I'm too influenced by a book that I read recently where exactly this happened and, you know, the networks crashed and all knowledge was lost. Is this I just a, feel like... Is this like a um, nonfiction book or is this like a science fiction book? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's totally nonfiction. Um, it, you know, I, I just feel like if worst comes to worst, you always still have the paper copy and I don't, I don't want to go too all in on electronic. But you know what? I will, I'll, I'll agree to disagree with you on that because I feel like we don't want to get stuck arguing about point one for the, ne <laughs> for the next 15 minutes. Okay, but I do have one more thing to say about point one, other than the fact that now I have this like weird desire to come and like set your printed out articles on fire. Um, but my other point about uh, about stage one is that I do think that like the vast majority of people are getting all of their um, journal content online. Um, but I still think that the the system has not fully embraced the the potential for that that an online platform provides, right? So we still sort of act as though journals have limited page counts. Um, I think uh, maybe maybe that's the big thing. Um, yeah, we still have distinctions between different journals, but maybe maybe that is totally compatible with things being online. Um, but we still treat this as like a um, as having limitations that. I think the online format actually doesn't have, but I think those limitations occur in other ways. So maybe they're not actually literally page limits, but they are um, like reviewer time and uh, editorial staff, you know, salaries and things like that. Yeah. Or just like reader time and attention, right? Like part of what psych science does for me is it picks like about 15 articles that I should care about that month. And if they picked 500 i'd be like I can't, I can't even skim the table of contents right uh -huh. right 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 yes um 
Okay, so should should we go to stage two? Let's go to stage two, which is open access. And I feel like that's something that's more and more the norm. So like more and more you search on Google Scholar for a recent paper and it's available somewhere uh, on the internet. Now that might not always be strictly legal. And I think that the way that this paper talked about it was more, you know, with the journal's permission, are you posting a preprint or uh, do they perhaps host an open access version of the of the paper? But, you know, I mean, I think you see it both ways. So I personally post mostly actually the formatted copyrighted versions of uh, my articles on my website and I'm kind of like, fuck you, come sue me if you don't like it. And I've never, <laughs> I've never had any complaints about it. Um, and, you know, I know that I'm technically violating their copyright there. Um, but, you know, in theory, you could just post the like last accepted version or like link to the last version of the preprint um, or, you know, pay to have the paper make open access, made open access, which costs various amounts of money, depending on the journal. So I feel like on that one, we're doing like reasonably well. Yeah, I would say that I agree with that. And also that's like a, that's an area where I think we have had some, or at least from my perspective, we've had some wins in the past couple of years. So like, um, so the journal AMPS, um, Advances in Methods and Practices in Psychological Science, uh, became open access in January of this year. Um, and that's an APS journal. So this is like, this feels like a big deal. And then also I found out that uh, my institution, the University of Alabama, will now um, pay people's like open access publishing fees. Um, so that that feels like something that's like continuing to move forward in in a way that's like, pretty encouraging. Um, I mean, so this paper was published in 2012, the, the Nozick and Barnon paper. Um, and they were, their sort of vision was that all published research would be open access. I don't think we're at that point yet. Um, but I think things have changed quite a bit. Yeah. And to some degree, I mean, this is where technology is really like almost this unstoppable force of like, you know how Napster kind of forced the major labels to put their, <laughs> to, to, to let you buy MP3s from them. Uh, Sci-Hub is sort of forcing the hands of, of publishers in a way, like, if this stuff is available for free online, then it makes sense to find some way to make it available to the public in a legitimate way, like since it's going to happen one way or another. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So, okay. So what about these, the rest of these recommendations, which are much more, I would say, like kind of fundamental changes to the, how the peer review process works. And I think we can like kind of collapse them into saying, you know, traditionally what happens is a sort of a gatekeeping role for the journals. They decide whether your paper should be published. Eventually you go back and forth enough with um, the reviewers and the editor and they're, they either tell you to get lost or uh, they publish your paper and then that's it. You know, then it doesn't change anymore. Versus what he's proposing, they're, they're proposing, I should say, is a system that's like much more kind of dynamic and fluid where you first publish kind of a preprint on, you know, I guess now it would be SciArchive, which didn't exist uh, yet when this paper was written. So on a preprint server, um, you get a peer commentary um, and then you get, they propose sort of a grade from some reviewing body. Right, like a reviewing service or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And then you can revise your paper and get a new grade if you want. Um, But it it makes the paper more sort of a living document that evolves in 
um, in response to what your peers say and what like quote unquote official peer reviewers say and like the problems that they they point out. So I feel like we're nowhere close to that. Do you feel I differently? Agree. No, I mean, I do think that there is sort of a uh some version of that okay so the the closest thing that we have to i think what this like vision that is described is so you can post first of all you can post your paper on sci-archive which is like a big piece of this right you can um this like being able to make your work available without having to sort of like get past the gatekeepers that has changed Uh, you know like people can access your work on okay but not to be too argumentative but like putting a paper on a website isn't rocket science right so like archive is great and i use it but like right otherwise i would put it on my own website or put it on dropbox and send people the link whatever it's like but who goes to your website you are you're saying you're not on my website every day (laughs) hitting refresh (laughs) seeing if anything new has been posted Yeah, so I guess like I guess what Sciarchive is doing is just like compiling the papers in one place, and and actually I don't know if people ever use Sciarchive in like a I'm gonna go check out Sciarchive today and see what's been published in the area of research that I'm interested in. I, I think that's probably very rare. So I mean, I think that so it's possible to like endorse papers on on Sciarchive. Um, I was trying to take a look today. Like it's not clear to me how you would write a publicly available review within the Sci-Archive system, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but the way that this seems to, the closest thing to the vision that's articulated in this paper, I think, is the sort of like conversation that's had about new papers and sometimes new preprints on like Twitter or in, in blog posts and things like that. And that that's like getting a little bit closer. So like a paper could be posted and you could hear some criticism and the authors might respond but it's not, as you say, like, it's not this, like, living document that's, like, constantly getting feedback and constantly changing. It, it feels like a paper gets out there, there's, like, some, some discussion of it, and then that sort of dies down. Yeah, it's also, like like you said, um, much more ephemeral, like the discussion happens and then it goes away. So then overall, are we at, like, 50% here as far as we've done the things that they predicted we might end up doing? I think 50% is fair. I mean, I'm looking at this list um, and there's like, it's sort of spotty, right? So there's definitely like, there's, there are people who are behind open access and I think we're like sort of pushing in that direction. Um, And then there's some other stuff like publishing peer review, which actually like, so uh, Collabra, for instance, um, authors can select the option to have um, open peer review where um, peer reviews are available to the public. So, yeah, some of these things you see occasionally at certain journals. Um, but and 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 the fact that SciArchive exists, I think, changes the landscape a little bit. But I would say, like in in spirit, we're fifty percent there. Yeah. So I I think Nature Communications also has a thing where they will by default publish your review, although you can as a reviewer, you can opt out of it. So so here's I wonder what you think of this. It seems to me that the things that have changed are the things that don't fundamentally fundamentally threaten the revenue streams of uh, important players in the publishing industry, right? So if you're a publisher, you can be like, well, we used to charge libraries 
And now we'll charge an article publication fee, which, by the way, can be like really substantial. Like um, Nature Communications charges like 5K, I mm-hmm. think, to publish mm-hmm. there. Right. So, OK, we used to make our money this way. Now we'll make our money that way. Right. And by the same token, you know, scientific societies who make uh, quite a bit of their revenue from uh, journal now subscriptions might switch to a model where they, you know, they're open access and the authors pay a fee instead. But the society's revenue stream isn't interrupted by that. Um, So all of these things that that have gone through are things that don't really fundamentally affect that like stream of money coming in. And my suspicion would be that once you start drinking people's milkshakes, they're like, no fucking way, right? So I, I don't know if you remember in the last days of the Trump administration, there there was a rumor that they were mulling an executive order that I think would have made all taxpayer-funded research open access immediately. I do remember and, that. Yeah. And like lots of scientific societies went to went to the government to say, no, this is a terrible idea. And, you know, I'm sure they had like some BS concocted reason, but the the real reason is that it pays their bills, right? And they don't want the spigot turned off. And so I I think that anything more radical, like what's envisioned in these, like the second half of this plan that, that NOSIC and Barnon lay out, which really does interfere with the revenue is not going to happen. So Maybe this sounds naive, but like, what do we need? What do we need publishers for anymore at this point? Like, so I understand why they're sort of sticking around and I think, okay, so there's the, the, the part that's the connection between them and societies. Um, and so maybe like that will take some time to disentangle. And the other piece that I see is their like connection to prestige, right? So they're like publishing journals that have these reputations that are very much connected to our individual like success um, and recognition as scientists. But uh, but if we like can get past those things, so if we can sort of um, if if journals that like work out or publishing systems that work outside of that model um, can develop prestige, um, you know, like well-known researchers, let's say, or people who are doing good research, let's say, are publishing them in them. Like, can we, can we lose them? Like, yeah, I mean, in principle, I think absolutely. I think in principle, they add very little value and extract a lot of money. Right. (laughs) Right. But in practice, in practice, like scientists are very small C conservative and they're going to want to publish in the prestigious outlet rather than the startup. Um, And so there's this kind of first mover problem of I don't want to be the person who's publishing all my stuff in, you know, JDM, the online journal, or in Collabora Psychology, where full disclosure, I'm an editor, right? So I'm biased. Great journal. But but it's it's just like not where you send your A stuff. It's not where I send my A stuff, mm-hmm. right? I want my A stuff in fucking psych science because I know people pay more attention to psych science, right? Mm-hmm. So like, I'm a huge hypocrite here. Like I'm, I'm doing exactly the thing. And the reason is that I want people to notice my work and I want my students to have the more prestigious, um, journal title on their Vita. And so the whole thing keeps rolling. So it's very, very hard to like break out of that. I think this is where we like fall apart. You know, it's like, it's like liberals who have these like values and then they have kids and they're like, fuck my values. I'm sending my kid to the private school. You know, that's like what we are. We have our grad students and we're like, yeah, (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, that stuff is all well and good in theory, but I'm not going to have my grad student publishing it. Uh, let's not name a journal. <laughs> but, yeah. but I want that paper to be in, like, you know, prestige journal. A prestige journal is still the not open access, you know, expensive journal. And so I don't, I don't know how you, how you break that cycle. I mean, people are trying, right? Like, universities care a lot about this. They spend a lot of money on this. Maybe they have the leverage to make it happen, but I don't know. There seems to be this real inertia in the system. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, I think that, I think, I guess prestige has a lot of inertia, I think. Um, And yeah, like you said, it takes, it'll take like a critical mass of people who um, decide to avoid those, who, who decide to like take a temporary hit, I guess, um, in terms of the like sort of like audience and recognition of their work um, in order for that to shift. And yeah, I don't know if it's possible that that doesn't happen. Yeah, especially because like the individual researchers don't really pay the costs of the current system. Like it's not really visible to us. And we would pay a cost of not publishing our work in the most prestigious journal that'll have it, right? So the reason not to do the status quo is just purely idealism. I guess like if you have enough of a sort of, um, of a reputation as a researcher, you can get around some of these things. Like maybe um, you can like do the promotion for your own work and, you know, get people to see it, even if it's not like, you know, popping up in the table of contents of six science or whatever. Um, But yeah, that's, that's a small group of people who are, perhaps the people who are less least likely to bother with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So, Alexa, how's your beer situation? Um, my beer situation is good, but I could I could change beers. Let's take a quick break, change beers and we'll be right back. Hi there, listeners. Yoel here. This week, we're being sponsored by Paperpile. Paperpile is a reference manager that runs entirely in a browser. And when they contacted us, I was actually really excited about this sponsorship because I had messed around with it a while ago. I've used a variety of reference managers. None of them have really ever stuck with me. Uh, And uh, I just happened to be working on a big project in Google Docs with a collaborator. And Paperpile began as a reference manager for Google Docs, and it still is. Uh, I I think the best, easiest way to cite uh, things just from within Google Docs. So you uh, install a Google Docs plugin and it allows you to cite within a Google document uh, and and certain format citations in a way that a reference manager normally would. They've since expanded. Uh, They have a word plugin as well. Um, They uh, have apps for iOS and Android. uh, So you can read the PDFs that you've added to your library on the go as well. One thing that I noticed when I when I tried it out again is their integration with Google Scholar is awesome. So if you have Paperpile installed in Google Scholar, you get a little button that says add to Paperpile. So let's say you do a search, uh, it pulls up some results and you're like, oh, I want to save these four to my library. And you just click the add to Paperpile button. It'll even in most cases be able to fetch the PDF for you. And that just then shows up in your Paperpile library. Uh, the uh, reference manager itself, like I said, is all online. It runs in a web browser. Uh, it works really well. So you don't have to install any software. You don't have to update 
update any software, often reference manager software, particularly on the Mac, can be kind of clunky and ugly. This looks really nice, and it runs any place you can run a web browser. Uh, it's also fully collaborative, so you can uh, collaborate with uh, other people, share libraries, and so on. So if you're curious, you can head over to paperpile.com uh, and sign up to get started. Anybody can get 30 days free uh, to play with all of the features and check it out, see if it fits your workflow. Uh, they do have import as well from existing reference managers. I tested that out. It worked really well. Uh, if you're interested in subscribing, it costs $2.99 a month for an individual academic, which would be 36 bucks a year. But if you use our discount code, which is beers, that is B-E-E-R-S, you get 20% off of that price. Uh, so that would bring it down to around $30 a year, uh, which I think is quite reasonable. Uh, so again, if you're interested in checking it out, uh, you can get a 30-day trial for free to play around with some of the features. Uh, that's at paperpile.com. Okay, back to our show. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. Uh, for the time being, uh, Mickey, Alexa, and I are all checking the mentions on that account. So you can mention us or DM us there if you'd like to get in touch with us. Um, if you'd like to email, the show's email account is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Again, that goes to all three of us. Finally, our website, fourbeers.com. You can find any of our episodes there. You can also drop us a note there as well. Uh, just a reminder, if you are enjoying the show and you haven't yet rated or reviewed us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, uh, please just take a minute to do that. We enjoy the reviews and it helps other people discover the show. Okay, Alexa, what's beer number two? Okay, beer number two is Idaho 7 Cashmere, um, which means nothing to me. Uh, it's an IPA and the uh, brewery is uh, Westbrook Brewing Company um, in South Carolina. Nice. I'm loving these beer names. Um I have a beer. This is a raspberry framboise, but it is from this fucking brewery that I wasn't able to pronounce last time and Mickey made fun of me. Dieu du ciel. And I'm glad he's not here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, it is called uh, Solstice de Eight, and uh, I'm about to try it now. So cheers. Cheers. I'm speculating about the... Um... 
where this the name of this beer came from. And I'm wondering if they were just like, these are three words that people really like, you know? Um, like people like cashmere, Idaho is obviously a beautiful state name. People like the number seven. It is sort of like free association almost, right? Yeah, maybe they just threw a bunch of words in a hat and pulled some out. Do you remember the website Ashley Madison? Uh, I do indeed. Yeah. Apparently the the name for that website was chosen because those were like the two most popular children's names in that year. <laughs> That's kind of fucked up. Though. Yeah. No. <laughs> they were just like, everybody finds these things pleasant and approachable and they will like feel better about pursuing their online affairs if... Right, right. You know what says online infidelity site? Children's <laughs> names. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Um, so before the break, we were talking about uh, Scientific Utopia 1. I would say we've satisfactorily covered Scientific Utopia 1. So do we want to move on to Scientific Utopia 2? Let's do that. Yeah, Scientific Utopia 2, I think is much more about kind of research practice, whereas Scientific Utopia 1 was really pretty specifically about the uh, the journal system and publication system. Um, so this is just kind of like, how are we going to be doing research differently uh, when these reforms that are being proposed really take root? And it, it starts with this great anecdote that's like this finding that moderates are more capable of discerning different shades of gray. And one thing that really hit home to me about like how things have changed is like, I, I believe the authors, so this was uh, no second modal who, who found this in some of their data. I believe them when they said they were legitimately excited about this finding and thought it was great because now I read that and I'm like, Oh, no fucking way. Right. It's like, that's obvious bullshit. And so the story that they tell is uh, kind of an alternate history where they just move ahead to to publish um, and put this finding out there. And then what actually happened, which is that they just run the same study again. And of course, they don't replicate that result because in hindsight, it's obviously uh, pretty much can't be true. So, so that's their, <laughs> their, their sort of opener. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb there and say that pretty much can't be true. Um, and then they have a, a list of things that they think will, will change in research that will, I guess, um, reduce the number of times that we publish, especially these kind of like exciting or flashy false positive findings and, increased kind of our rigor and, and caution. Would you say that's like a fair description of what they're arguing? Yeah, right. Like I I think that with Scientific Utopia one, the the like introductory example that's like, look how stupid our system is 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 about the publication process. And then in Scientific Utopia two, the opening example is like, it's insane that when we decided to replicate our work, we were like, shit, that was stupid. Like this was the professionally incorrect choice, right? Like in terms of, um, you know, uh, professional recognition and success and whatnot was to do the thing that seems obviously better for science, right? So there's a lot of like presenting this, um, this like conflict of interest between our own 
success as scientists and uh, what we are sensibly interested in in terms of like advancing our knowledge and discovering true things about the world and things like that. Um, yeah, which is a feeling that I can totally relate to. I don't think I've literally been in the position of uh, I have this exciting finding and then I try a replication and it just doesn't work at all. But I have had a situation where we had a paper nearly done and we had a mechanism that seemed pretty reasonable. And then actually my student at the time, Ellen, was like, yeah, well, let's just check this other thing that ought to follow if the mechanism is true. It just to like really make the story convincing. And then that doesn't work. And it's like, fuck, why didn't we just leave well enough alone? Right. That's like it's maybe I'm just a terrible person, but that totally was my first reaction. Yeah, right. I've, I've also been in situations where, like, I've I've planned a series of studies deliberately avoiding um, avoiding too much overlap between them, so that like, yeah, basically, so that they're all conceptual replications, and if one fails, it's easy to sort of like dismiss it as a consequence of fails, right? Um, is inconsistent with the others. Uh, it's easy to dismiss it as a consequence of the sort of like conceptual element that you changed, which, you know, ties in with, there's a, there's a section in this paper on, uh, on things that won't solve the problem. And one of them is conceptual replications for exactly that reason. Right. Right. So I actually, I, I do want to do something a little bit unconventional, um, with, with this one because they have a number of recommendations. and I think a, a lot of them are worth talking about, but I actually want to talk about the last one first, which is they say, um, open data, um, open methods by, by which I think they just mean like materials and, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, analysis scripts and so on, and then open workflow, which um, in today's language, I think you would call pre-registration, um, right? So uh, they they think that these are things that are going to become much more prevalent. And so what I did actually was I was curious about how much is this actually happening. Um, so I went and coded in the latest uh, issue of Psych Science, uh, that's uh, issue five, uh, so the May issue of this year, uh, what percentage of the articles had uh, open data badges, open materials badges, and pre-registration badges. Uh -huh. And th and then I did the same thing for the latest issue of JPSB, that's the April issue, which doesn't have badges, so I had to go through and actually like skim those articles. Um, and uh, what I did there was I searched for like... Um, pre-registration um, and like related terms like that. I searched for OSF and then if, if nothing like that turned up, I actually went and like looked through the kind of study methods to see whether they had posted data someplace else. So um, I'm curious what your intuitions are um, for psych science and for JPSB. Uh, what percentage of articles have open data, open materials, and pre-registration? So maybe we start with psych science just to keep this tractable. Do you have a, a guess as for like what percentage of articles have open data, open materials, and at least one study pre-registered? This is just going by the badges. I didn't actually verify this in the papers. So this is going to be like really a shot in the dark because I don't I don't do this like looking through the the table of contents of psych science. Um, my guess is that. For open data and open materials, um, let's say 70% open data, 80% open materials, 30% uh, pre-registration. Okay. 
And um, what about JPSP? <laughs> Same questions. You're not even going to give me like a feedback? No, I don't want to bias you. I don't want to bias you. Uh, uh, JPSP, I guess, I guess my intuition is just like sort of like a little bit lower on all. So um, especially because they don't have badges. So maybe like quite a bit lower. Um, let's say... 40% open data, open materials, and 15% pre-registered. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so um, I, I think you were actually like reasonably close on all of those. So for psych science and, and uh, just disclaimer, you know, this, there were 16 total articles in this issue of psych science. There uh -huh. were 12 total articles in this issue of JPSB. So it's obviously like small samples, 81% had open data, um, about half had open materials, 38% uh, had at least one pre-registration. Um, for JPSP, 67% uh, had open data, um, 75% actually had open materials, and uh, only 17% had a pre-registration. And that open data number would have been higher, but in the individual differences section, there were two articles that had these like national data sets that were collected by the governments, I think, of Denmark and Germany, and that weren't allowed to be shared, right? So I, I'm not quite sure that it's fair to say, I mean, it's, I guess, fair in the sense of like, you can't have the data, you have to go ask the Danish government, mm -hmm. but the researchers weren't allowed to to repost it, right? So maybe that like makes the numbers a little bit lower there. Um, so the main thing that I took away from this is like, when it comes to like open data and materials, like things actually look pretty good. Like, you know, 80, 70% uh, of articles are, are posting data. Um, and it's a little lower than that on average for materials, but still pretty good. And pre-registration really is the one that seems to lag there. And so, I mean, I wonder whether you have any theories about why that might be. Well, I mean, I guess the simplest answer is that open data and open materials is easier than pre-registering things. Um, the, I mean, it's easier both in that, like, the steps it takes to um, execute those tasks are very straightforward. Um, I mean, not not totally. Like, sometimes, you know, it takes some time to make your data comprehensible to other people. And, um, yeah, I don't know, find ways to post your materials. Um particularly if it's not just sort of like a Qualtrics script or something like that. Um, but also um, but also easier in that like pre-registration ties your hands. So like if your only goal is to publish papers, um, you are better served by, yeah, I think you're better served by not pre-registering things. Um, and maybe that gives you a slight disadvantage for um journals that incentivize pre-registration in some way. Um, but you still have some chance of getting your paper into that journal and you have a much better chance of getting it into a journal where they're primarily concerned with like tidy novel results, um, allowing you to sort of like present what, whatever, um, whatever story you sort of sounds the best. Um, and if there's no incentive for, for pre-registration, then you don't really get dinged. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was my intuition too, is it's just that posting data materials is sort of lower cost, right? Whereas pre-registration might really 
if a lot of your results depend on making analytic choices flexibly, then there's an obvious cost. And even if, let's say, like, let's be charitable and say that people by and large don't want to do that, it's still something that you have to do in advance. Um, it requires more thinking beforehand. Um, and it, it's sort of a new system that people might not be used to, whereas just like putting your data into a repository, like putting your data on the OSF or whatever, it's like literally just like uploading some files. Like if you can't get it together mm -hmm. to do that, I mean, what's kind of what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. And I guess like one, one thing to also keep in mind is that um, if we if we sort of came up with ideal numbers for these three categories, I don't think they would all be a hundred percent. So, I mean, I guess like open data and open materials would be a hundred percent if you could sort of like avoid the concerns with, you know, like sensitive data or what, or, or things that prevent people from, from making data open, which I think there are real uh, barriers to that in some cases. Um, hypothetically, if you could avoid those things or, or, um, address those issues in some other way and still make the data open, I think 100% would be great in both cases. But I don't know that we want 100% pre-registered. Um, and I guess I arrived at that conclusion because in my lab, we don't do 100% pre-registered research. Like uh, basically anytime we start a research project, we pre-register something. Uh, but there are times when we collect data sets and you know, we, we do the thing that we pre-registered and then we're like, oh yeah, um, it would be cool to investigate this other thing. And then we do an exploratory um, analysis of that other question. And I don't, yeah, I don't like plan to stop doing that. I don't, I don't think that the ideal is to not do that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's totally right. Um, I mean, just about the methods here, like you get, uh, you get counted as pre-registering if you have one pre-registered study in the paper. Um, and I believe that's how Psych Science awards the badge, right? You only have to have one, um, and it's how I scored it as well for for JPSB. So, like, I would say in my like experimental stuff, uh, maybe I'm forgetting a paper or something, but like at least one pre-registered study. I, I I think in all of the recent things that's true. Um, Actually, I, a student and I just had something come out a couple months ago in psych science, and it's not pre-registered. It's like this um, observational data, like this big Twitter data set. And we actually originally did pre-register some analyses, and then we figured out that we were completely wrong, right? It's just like really hard to like analyze these data, and we ended up doing something completely different in the end. So yeah, I'm not like some sort of like... Uh, pre-registration purist who's like the optimal number is 100%. I'd say the optimal percentage is probably higher than JPSP's 17%, which yeah. is two of the 12. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah. Especially when you consider that that... So what that means is that what, like, something like 3 or 4% of studies in JPSP are pre-registered? Oh, I guess it might not mean that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I I didn't code it to that like level of granularity, right? So I looked in the paper for like pre-registered or pre-registration or something like that, and if I found it anywhere, then I gave it a pre-registration, you know, check. Right. That would be sort of like the lower bound, I guess. If like you know, studies on average have like four or five 
or papers on average have more four or five studies and like only one of them is pre-registered, but it could be better than that. Yeah. It, which is actually pretty common for the stuff that I do, right? Like I'm, I often like have um, some studies that are like either it just seems so obvious that the pre-registration is kind of pointless or else I like kind of replicate it across multiple studies. But then I'm like, typically it's a study that I'm not quite sure will work or else I want to do something kind of that might raise flags or something if it were pre-registered. So I would be like, Oh, I'll pre-register that one. That's sort of the more, the the typical pattern for me. I don't know. Maybe you're better about pre-registering more of your things. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think that we have like a totally consistent pattern. Um, but yeah, we've certainly, we've certainly done studies where we've pre-registered some sort of like big thing and then, you know, like, and then investigated something else. Um, yeah. yeah. Which is like, to me, a hundred percent legit, right? Like it's a plan that you make ahead of time. It makes your results more convincing to people. If you find out that the smart thing to do is to walk away from the plan, then that's fine. Right. Like it's it, to me is just a way of delineating what are the things that we plan in advance versus what are the things that we didn't. Right. That's it. So, yeah, making it into this like sort of be all end all of good research is a little silly, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so there's a there's another uh, recommendation that I think could be a fun one to talk about, and that is uh, it's recommendation six. So or according to my list, it's recommendation six. Um, and that is that, uh, journals with, or journals should develop peer review standards focused on the soundness, not importance of research. Um, and I thought that this one was kind of interesting because I think there's like a lack of consensus about whether this is a good thing. Um, so I think that there are people 10 years later who would say like, oh, we really don't want that. Um, and we do have some like journals who have this sort of like explicitly in their, uh, criteria or so the instructions that they give to editors and reviewers for evaluating papers. So, um, like Calabra specifically says, um, like their, their guidelines say psychology editor, or sorry, Calabra psychology editors and reviewers do not attempt to predict a submission's impact on the field, nor employ any topic bias in accepting articles. Uh, they will check for rigorously, um, and transparently conducted, statistically sound, adequately powered, and fairly analyzed research worthy of inclusion in the scholarly record. So there's this sort of like explicit instruction that we should not be considering something like impact, um, and we shouldn't show any preference for topics that we think are interesting versus boring, et cetera, et cetera. We should just be evaluating the quality of the research. Um, so I think that's like very consistent with his recommendation. And I also think that um, lots of people dislike this advice. Yeah, I mean, I'm an editor at Calabra, right? So obviously, to some extent, I buy into that there ought to be an outlet or well, more than one, really, where that is the standard. At the same time, like I like ambition and I like exciting new idea. And I like that there's journals that do value that. And I think that prestige journals have not in any way stopped valuing that. And I I think in the good cases, they've, in addition, started valuing rigor much more. Um, So psych science, I would would describe that way. Um, In some cases, they really haven't. And it's just all about like, oh, is this splashy? In 
I think that's also a bad situation. But I wouldn't want to walk away from the idea that some research actually is more interesting and important because it has a the idea is better, the topic is more interesting, or the methods are cooler. I don't think you can just reduce it to like well, checking the boxes of like was it competently done, and if it clears the competence bar, then you know it's uh, it's good enough to publish in the best journals. I think there's a hierarchy for a reason. I don't see any problem with that really. Yeah, I mean, I think the point about like it's it's nice to have some outlets that do this is like feels pretty satisfying. Um, I have like a similar so as as an AE at at Calabra, um, there's certainly like a relief in those guidelines. So I find it easier to evaluate papers when I'm just focusing on uh, on like methodological rigor um, and the sort of like alignment between the methods and the claims and things like that. Then when I'm trying to evaluate, like, yeah, is this important? Should people care? That kind of thing. And I have a similar feeling in in going through that. So when when I'm reviewing for journals that don't have that caveat or, I don't know, maybe like before I, I deliberately started sort of like considering novelty and impact less, um... I found that very like challenging to evaluate. And I had I have a similar experience when I am grading students' work. Uh, so it feels like challenging to do to do it right. And it feels like there's like clearly a lot of subjectivity that comes into it. And I often am like concerned that uh, I'm doing a bad job. And when you like remove that expectation, it's sort of a relief. But in both cases, you can think of examples really far to one end or the other where you're like, okay, let's be real. Like we should really acknowledge that these two things are different. Right. Um, you know, like I could read a student's paper and think like, you know, Oh, maybe my opinion differs from theirs and that's like influencing my evaluation or maybe, uh, there are, you know, they have like, barriers to the time that they spend on this or whatever. There's like, there, there's some reason why this is like more effort for them than there would be for something else. Like there's all the, these complexities, right? But then, you know, sometimes you put two papers next to each other and you're like, okay, there's, there is meaning in, in acknowledging that one paper is much better than the other. And I think that probably applies to like the impact of psychology papers too. Yeah. No, I, I think that's totally right. I mean, there, as you point out, like there's a hugely subjective element to this. And I think that we can be much too confident about our predictions of, is this paper going to make an impact or not? I think we're quite bad at making those sorts of predictions. At the same time, I don't think that our predictive ability is zero. And I think that particularly at the extremes, it's pretty clear um, whether a paper tackles a big ambitious question or a kind of smaller incremental question. And the, the problem is that like most of the time we're not encountering stuff at the extremes, we're encountering stuff sort of in the middle and then we're making like much more difficult calls and, and often in fact getting it wrong. But I, I mean, I don't know, like is, I guess there's, an argument that seems totally reasonable, which is there should be a place to publish um, research that's rigorously done, but 
more incremental. And I, I it's hard to disagree with that. And then there's a much more radical claim that says, well, we should treat all research as equally valuable as long as it passes the bar of having been done rigorously. Right. I mean, it's interesting to like, to think more deeply about this recommendation because I think I've like sort of taken that for, I sort of accepted this recommendation a long time ago and sort of haven't questioned it for a while. Um, and I think the recommendation is coming from a, a place of concern about publication bias, essentially, right? So we don't want to be in a field where you publish one study on a topic and that's like the final word and anybody who tries to replicate that or replicate it and extend it or address the same question in any way is going to be dismissed as doing something that's like derivative and like not contributing anything to the field. And I definitely think that we want to move away from that. But to say that um, it's equally valuable to do research on a question that we anticipate could be important and on a question that we pretty much feel is likely to never be important, I actually like think that we have quite a responsibility to do the former. I mean, I understand that like we can't always anticipate, you know, what the impact will be, but I don't know if we're like, if you're deciding between doing a study on like, um, I don't know, beer preferences and personality um, versus like a, a study that, uh, I don't know, could, could address like uh, people's experiences with racism on campus or something like something that seems obviously like really important to people's quality of life um, or really like important societal issue. Uh, yeah, I don't think those things should be treated the same way. And I, I'm not sure that we should have an incentive structure that, that treats them the same way. Well, so this is a nice lead in into the last thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, and they have, as I count it, you know, eight recommendations. So we're not going to get to all of them. Um, but they talk about um, changing mindsets around evaluation and particularly in hiring and valuing different things. So valuing things other than who's published the like highest number of papers. And so, first of all, I'm curious to to hear whether you think that has that has changed for you guys, like when you're in a hiring meeting, like what you pay attention to. Um, and then also I'm curious, you know, like say somebody shows up, you know, in the in the pile of applicants and they've really done mostly replication studies. Would they have a shot? So, I mean, talking about the way that these meetings happen in my experience, um, I think basically we haven't changed at all. Um, I've heard that other people feel like their departments have changed. Um, so I'm like not so pessimistic as to say that like uh, broadly speaking, mindsets at their hiring stages haven't changed. Um, in my personal experience, I'm like one of a very small minority that, um, that would like us to, yeah, like, consider someone's open science record or, you know, like consider their, um, their replication studies or things like that. Um, somebody who had done only replication studies. Okay. So the, the most cynical answer to that question, um, would they have a chance is, uh, it's possible that somebody who had that record in my department could, if they had 
several first author publications in in sort of like like high status journals, which might be unlikely if they're all replication studies, but but like that people wouldn't even know that because, you know, we don't always read everyone's papers. And so like, it could just be like, oh, we're just like looking at impact factors and numbers. And we didn't realize that these, these were all replication studies. I mean, in practice, uh, no, th that person wouldn't have a chance. Um, and maybe, maybe you're also asking like, would I ding someone who had a record of purely replication studies? Um, and probably the the like perfectly honest answer is like a little bit but there there might be some version of um being sort of very thoughtful about the replication studies that you do and having sort of a progression of them or or having some sort of like research line that's created of replication studies that that I could find really impressive um but I I think that maybe there is um, there are some skills that are involved in doing original research that that you can't necessarily demonstrate in replication research, or it's hard to. Yeah, I I love that uh, the possibility that you guys might get to the <laughs> <laughs> the right answer for the wrong reasons. <laughs> oh, it's a JPSP. They do they publish replications, you know. Um, so so yeah, I I mean to answer for myself, um, I feel that. You know, I got to U of T in 2014, so so I don't have a great before. Um, but uh, I do feel that, you know, we talk about like whether somebody's research is trustworthy in a way that's very much affected by, you know, the stuff that's happened in the last 10 years. That will often prefer a candidate who's published less, but published like more kind of solid seeming work over somebody who's published more things that seem perhaps a bit flimsy, but, you know, still to me, if I consider the hypothetical candidate who's only done replications, I'm not super interested in that person. Right. And so maybe if it's like, oh, I have a passion for like this particular area and I noticed that the foundational work in this area uh, really didn't have a lot of like uh, validity evidence as far as like it being replicated recently. And so I don't know, I organized this big like multi-site effort to like replicate these foundational findings. It's like, okay, that I would get excited about, but it's not the replication per se, right? It's wrapped up in this other thing, right? So if you just like randomly replicate, you know, findings from JPSP, I'm like, eh, I'm not super excited about that. But, you know, I mean, now that now that I'm saying it that way, I mean, maybe I feel that way about non-replication studies too, right? So if you have a bunch of like one-offs that don't really add up to much and that I don't intrinsically find very interesting, then maybe I'm like, well, I'm not super interested. And really what I want is like evidence that somebody is like excited about some sort of area or a question. And that's kind of like motivating the stuff that they want to do, which in itself you could call like a dumb bias. Like, what does that matter? Like, is it, you're adding knowledge like either way like what what does it matter whether the person themselves are passionate about some area right mm -hmm. like I, I don't know i don't know how to evaluate that actually so if you had to like describe in in 2012 your like ideal candidate to hire and then now your 2021 ideal candidate to hire what would they look like well, the 2012 candidate would be the one who had a bunch of like, you know, uh, early aughts psych sciences that were along the lines of moderates. <laughs> Wait, no, moderates are better. Moderates are better at detecting <laughs> shades of gray, 
right? And now it's like I, you know, I I like the you know thoughtful, rigorous, like carefully done stuff, even if that isn't quite as like exciting in the sense of you know you send somebody the pop press right up of it and they're like whoa i can't believe people do that crazy thing right so somebody who it's not that the research necessarily has to be programmatic in terms of topic but that people like bring a certain approach or way of thinking about the stuff that they're doing that i find to be valuable yeah i mean probably my my 2012 person would be uh maybe yeah, like somebody who has like programmatic research on something that I think is important. Um, and yeah, I would have had the same like sort of preferences for prestigious journals. And um, yeah, I don't know that pretty similar to yours, maybe like a little bit, a little more towards like, I think this person's changing the world than like, I think this person's like putting out like really cool stuff or whatever. And then now, I mean, so the like, this idea of the the person who's doing a bunch of replication studies, um, I guess I don't want to like leave them as the only version of like the person who is like just like unit uh, uniformly focused on rigor. I think there's like a version of like not really doing much original research in a way that's like extremely creative. So like people who are leading like leading or playing a really big role in like large scale crowdsourced projects that are looking at um, like sort of like multiple big questions or that are tying together like replication research with some sort of like bigger meta scientific question. I find that stuff like really exciting and, um, and not usually because there's like some cool new social psych effect that's being examined, but there's like some sort of, there's some sort of like meta scientific approach that's novel and creative. And that's where the, the sort of like uh, innovation for me comes in. Yeah. You can almost think of that as a new method, right? If they've mm-hmm. like developed some way to, I'm thinking of like Calvin Lai's uh, tournament for uh, bias interventions, if I'm rem- remembering that correctly. Right. It's like, wow, that's a cool idea. It's not obvious. And it was a ton of work. So, like, I want to give a lot of credit for that. Yeah, exactly. Like, that kind of thing. Yep. All right. Well, I guess uh, in the end, we're we're agreeing with each other after all. We started, <laughs> we started out contentious. And as we've had more to drink, we've drifted towards agreement. <laughs> that sounds very right. Um, is there anything else that uh, we ought to mention that we haven't yet touched on? Uh, I think... I think I'm out. Yep. I think we covered it. Sweet. All right. I'm glad that we did the topic justice. And uh, talk to you guys next time.